Hello, Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Good to talk to you. And it turns out that uh, last week <laughs> I was wrong. We, we were wrong. <laughs> well, you know, we weren't so much wrong as just everyone didn't follow our advice, which was you shouldn't be calling an election. <laughs> well, yeah. And uh, it turns out that uh, Trudeau didn't really need to table some unpopular legislation. He just went to the governor general and that was the end of that par parliament. Yeah, and, you know, it, and after all of that, you know, there's tons of discussion, you know, all the pundits were going on and on about how the governor general should refuse the election call and there's weighty legal issues involved in precedent and uh, the uh, the uh, British House of Parliament had a uh, had the same issue come up and their speaker denied the prime minister the um, the dissolution that he had requested and it you know turns out absolutely you know none of that was true the uh as you said trudeau uh, walked up the uh the driveway of rideau hall knocked on the door and our new governor general said you're the prime minister you want an election you got one yeah it it was as simple as that and i think that the early um positioning of the opposition parties that this is an election no one wanted it's just because trudeau wants a majority i think that's dissipating I think that that is like the, the, the morning fog off the dew, that as the sun starts to shine, it disappears. I don't think that that is a winning campaign, uh, campaign theme for the opposition all the way through, because once you get past, okay, he wanted a majority, all right, what do you got? You know, I don't think Canadians are really outraged. We're, we're dealing, you know, we're still in the midst of COVID, but the Americans managed to have an election when COVID was full blown. And of course, it's still full blown down there. Uh, there's no reason we can't have a, a safe election here. So I think that that tack um, may have been useful out of the gate. But going forward, I don't see it as having any potency, any lasting potency. What about you? No, I mean, I think you're right. I think it is sort of dissipating. I think people are in election mode right now. I think the people who were, uh, who were, who might still be mad and making an issue of the fact that we're having an early election and early election, most minority governments in Canada, and we've had a lot of minority governments actually federally um, yeah. and, and provincially, most minority governments last a maximum of two years. And we're kind of at the two year mark here. So, you know, there's a sense that it feels kind of like it hasn't been too long but i think the people who are saying and mad that you know this is an early election i've seen people saying this is going to cost us half a billion dollars to to run the election and you know they're wasting our money asking my asking my opinion as a voter um the people who feel that way were are probably feeling that way because they're not trudeau fans to begin with and it doesn't really matter if the election was was is now or in 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 another year there's still going to be unhappy at Trudeau for, for calling an election. So I don't think that that's tipped the scales for a lot of undecided people about having the election. And I think, you know, like you said, in terms of COVID, you know, we've had some provincial elections. We had one just this week, um, you know, that, that was able to run successfully. And elections themselves now are not really the touchy-feely things they used to be. Uh, you know, the, the, the era of kissing babies is, is kind of long gone. It's all electronic. It's all email. It's all direct mail. It's all phone. It's uh, TV commercials. I mean, it, everyone's, you know, there would be some rallies. 
um, you know, in the in the local areas that you know to show that you you know support for candidates. But those things, I don't think those things necessarily convince anybody in terms of of voting intention no you only go to those things because you're already committed to the candidate who's going to be there or to say something to or to heckle them yeah. yeah yeah exactly but, but very few undecided people say let me go wander around with a group of people and see the candidate uh glad handing and waving and that'll make my decision uh, i don't think that that is statistically relevant no and so i don't think that covid even you know and you know the way it is right now, or you know, assuming it it worsens as well, is is not going to affect electioneering particularly. Um, you know, they might put a sign on your lawn, uh, but you know, you don't really interact. You know, even on the doorstep, if uh, on those rare occasions where a candidate actually comes to your door and rings the bell uh, and wants to discuss the issues with you, you know, stand six feet back. It's not that tough. And, you know, it's all doable during COVID. So the people who say, you know, this is a bad time because of the pandemic, I don't see it being a, an influence one way or the other. Uh, if anything, you're going to catch a lot more people at home. So if you're going door to door at a safe distance, wearing masks and double vaccinated and all that kind of stuff, uh, you're probably going to catch a lot more voters at home than you normally would. Uh, and because, you know, normally you have to go around at the dinner hour and, and uh, annoy people while they're in the middle of their meal just to catch a voter at home. We're all home right now. So it's really easy to uh, to meet the voters. Well, you mentioned double vaxxed and people going door to door. And it amazed me today to find out that Aaron O'Toole has has conservative candidates uh, who are not uh, vaccinated and he's tolerating it. He's he's coming up with uh, band-aids to to make it okay, such as daily rapid COVID tests. But the, the idea that one of our major parties is out there with representatives who refuse to be vaccinated, it blew my mind. I thought maybe some fringe fringe party, maybe Maxine Bernier's party, where you know they they hold the, the convention in a bus shelter. I thought maybe those small organizations, those small parties would have an anti-vax stance or have anti-vaxxers within it. I didn't think it'd be one of the two major parties. Yeah, and it, and it really just goes to show sort of what a strange coalition of, of thinkers the Conservative Party is that, you know, number one, that you have people who are still unconvinced that they should be vaccinated when, you know, right now vaccines are pretty much flowing down the gutters of the streets. I mean, if you want to, you know, there were times you had to, you know, go and sit in a four hour line or, you know, uh, you know, hustle on the phones or the websites trying to book an appointment. Now you can pretty much walk into a pharmacy and get a shot. You know, I, I had a COVID test. Uh, I mentioned uh, I had a cold a couple of weeks ago, went and got a COVID test just to be on the incredibly safe side. And I went to a clinic on a Sunday. Um, I'm sorry, it was on a Saturday and um, it was advertised. I got there. There were literally two people waiting to be vaccinated and four of us waiting to have a COVID test. Now co contrast that to, you know, when everyone was scrambling a few months ago to get their vaccines, uh, you know, when you know, I, I stood in line with my son for two and a half hours for him to get his, his uh, first shot. Um, now you can, there's no excuse. We have, we're awash in vaccine right now. And so the fact that people who are candidates for public office are not vaccinated, it's not because they've had a hard time getting the vaccine. It's because they don't want the vaccine.
Yeah, and maybe one of them has a medical exception, maybe. Oh, I got news. There, there's no such thing as a medical exception. They've they've gone through this. They're you know they've asked doctors like, well, what kind of condition would you not recommend someone get the vaccine? And they just go like, I can't think of one. Um, if you've got if you've had a lung transplant, you absolutely should get the vaccine um, because you're more at risk. I mean, they talk about allergy. You know, pregnant women should get the vaccine. You know, you know, we're pushing down the age groups too. We're at you know twelve and up. It's gonna, you know, and we may be going younger than that, but doctors are hard pressed to find any kind of medical reason why you should not get this vaccine. They say, you know, some people have had um, allergic reactions and they say, you know what, it's better for you to have an allergic reaction and take some antihistamine or, you know, worst case scenario, have your EpiPen ready, which is why they make you sit in the, in the, uh, the pharmacy for 15 minutes afterwards to see if you're going to have one of these incredibly rare, incredibly rare reactions. But they say, even if you do have one, you're better off getting the vaccine, taking a shot of your EpiPen because you're more likely to die from COVID-related stuff than you are from the anaphylaxis. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, uh, that there really are no sensible medical objections. There are, for some groups, I understand, religious objections. And, and again, I don't know how that's possible because, you know, I don't, I can't remember Jesus saying anything about vaccinations or Buddha or, or Confucius or Moses or, uh, or Muhammad. Well, um, the, I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses won't allow blood transplant or blood uh, transfusions. So perhaps they're one of the groups. And again, I'm speaking in ignorance. Perhaps they're one of the groups that, that don't believe in it. Christian scientists maybe don't believe in it. Um, I don't know. Uh, just as two examples that pop yeah. into mind as possibilities. Uh, and, and what do you do? This is one of those sticky wickets with religious freedom. What do you do when you come up against something like that? And I guess my answer is the number of people subscribing to that religion, I think is rather small in, in the scheme of things. And if they're willing to risk getting COVID, and increasingly it seems like it's just the unvaccinated getting COVID. If they're willing to take that risk, I think that's possibly better than setting a precedent where the state says that they can't uh, observe their religion. Yeah, although the Supreme Court did actually look at uh, freedom of religion under the charter and, and it's, it's sort of poor cousin uh, freedom of conscience, which, you know, it's in the same section of the charter and in relation to the limits on religious uh, freedoms. And the Supreme Court said, uh, it was a 2015 case, uh, said that um, freedom of religion takes a backseat to public health, to criminal activity, to all, you know, a whole bunch of, of things that are good for society. So they've really said, you know, your religious freedom has some pretty serious limits on it when it comes to the welfare of other people. So, you know, if, you, if it's just you're going to kill yourself, then, <clears throat> you know, uh, and, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses who don't believe in, in blood transfusions, laws upheld that individuals who don't want to have a blood transfusion uh, and are going to die, then, you know, that is their right. However, when you start af you know, affecting other people with your religious views and, you know, in a pandemic when we're sharing viruses and all the rest and we're, we're, we're going for the, towards this mythical herd immunity, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the, uh, what the Supreme Court finally said about it. But, you know, the, the idea of religious freedom trumping things like vaccinations, um, you know, we've accommodated them. 
But uh, if it was really, really serious, uh, I think the Supreme Court would say, no, I'm sorry, your, your, your religion does not trump uh, public health, which is what it, what it did say in, in, in this one case. Very interesting to see what becomes of it. We're not at the stage now where vaccines are mandated. Uh, it's not like mask mandates where you're not asking somebody to introduce something foreign to their body. You're asking them to put a piece of cloth over their nose and mouth. Uh, getting to the point where the state insists that you put something invasive into your body. Um, I understand from a philosophical point of view why some people have a problem with that, but philosophy has to take a back seat to uh, reality sometimes. And to be an idealist and die on that hill, uh, I think is foolishness because philosophy can never really predict all circumstances. And, you know, the thought is, it doesn't matter what the circumstance, the philosophy maintains throughout that. And it, that's nice if you live in the world and the arena of thoughts. But when you live in the world of people, there are situations which mean that uh, I don't give a fig about your ideology. It's uh, time for you to, to, you know, person up and do the right thing for the safety of others. And it, it's interesting to me just how many people don't seem to give a damn about the safety of others. And I think I should put it in context. The number of people who are vaccine hesitant in Canada is not giant. No, it's very small. Yeah. And so they, they say it's somewhere between five and seven percent of, of sort of the hardcore group. Yeah. And so not to make too big a deal out of out of this, not to blow it out of proportion, but the fact that there are people who are saying, in essence, I don't care. I'm willing to take the risk for myself, and I don't care if I'm causing, if I cause a problem to you, if I cause an infection to you. That's uh, some of them would say that's not their thinking. Some of them would would again argue a libertarian point of view or something or other. But that's essentially the bottom line of what the the effectiveness of of what they're saying is. So. It, that's, but I, I guess compared to, to our closest neighbor, where vaccine hesitancy is up in the double digits, it, it shows again just how far apart we continue to drift from the United States uh, socially, culturally, and politically. And speaking of politics, as we have been, I think it's interesting that with there being M, uh, potential MPs, who are unvaccinated in the Conservative Party, it shows me that that uh, Aaron O'Toole doesn't have too firm a grip on that party. I mean, Doug Ford is saying that uh, they're mandatory. He's a conservative. Aaron O'Toole is a conservative and is not saying that they're mandatory. And that says to me, he just he doesn't feel that he's got the authority. He doesn't feel he has the support to institute something like that. That there'll be some kind of uh, revolt by the social conservatives. So it says that to me that his grip on leadership of the conservatives into this election is tenuous. Yeah, and some of it speaks to the constituency too, because you know, I, was, I was a little bit surprised by how, uh, how adamant Doug Ford has been about uh, getting his caucus uh, vaccinated. Um, it, today, I think is D-Day, there's two, uh, two members of his caucus who had been, who had been named uh, as of yesterday who uh, who had, were the two holdouts who refused, 
to get um, um, to get vaccinated. Uh, you know, uh, MPP Rick Nichols and MPP uh, Christina Mittas. And if you look at some of their their uh, social media posts, you can tell that they are. Uh, well, uh, Christina Mittas was one of um, one of Ford's big critics about shutdowns. I mean, she's a very anti-shutdown. Shutdowns don't work. Uh, you know, and it's only a short uh, step from there to being anti-maskers and anti-vaccine people. But they were the two who are identified who were facing expulsion from caucus for being unvaccinated. And today is their last day. Um, and but but Ford's constituency is very different. I mean, he, you know, Toronto is, is a big part of Ontario, the urban areas of Toronto, uh, where you find the biggest uptake in vaccinations is, is really what Ford has to worry about, um, you know, with an election next year, provincially. Uh, whereas, um, you know, if you're, uh, if you're O'Toole and your constituency includes Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, which has the highest percentage of vaccine hesitant people in Canada, that's that's who he's playing to. Um, he's not playing to the the you know Toronto where they have no seats, or you know the Montrealers or the uh, the, um, the Vancouverites or you know any of the big urban centers. He's playing to the people who are the bread and butter of conservative support, which is Alberta. So he is very very careful not to step on their toes. So I'm not surprised that he is um, wishy washy on on mandatory vaccinations and instead has said even with his own caucus well you know if you get this rapid test uh every single day then i guess you're you're okay uh, it's not a question of leading by example you just uh, you know you, you just go be you i wonder if well you know it, i initially was going to say i wonder if it will piss off enough uh, moderate conservatives that they won't vote or that they'll uh, move their vote to another camp. But conservatives aren't like that. Conserva if, you're, if you're born voting conservative, uh, other than myself, <laughs> um, <laughs> you don't tend to switch in your adult life party affiliation. So they'll hold their nose and continue to vote. But I think that uh, even in Aaron O'Toole's camp, they have to know that it's time for him to start reading the want ads. Oh, well, I think, I'll, I'll, you know, depending on how this election works, we're going to have, uh, you know, all but probably uh, one party leader uh, who is going to be reading the want ads because, you know, everyone else is, uh, is, is going to be out on their ears one way or the other. You think, you think that they'll get rid of saying, I don't, because the NDP keeps leaders longer because they never go into it expecting to win. So it really depends upon how well or poorly or how, you know, laterally the party does in an election they'd have to do fairly poorly in this election for them to oust sing i think they've really hitched their wagons to him and have made you know made him their their attempt at a rock star and right. i and, and i don't know who's in the wings that could do any better i mean sing has a positive personal uh, favorability I, I don't know how, I think that's mostly amongst people who don't know what, what it is he says and what public statements and positions he takes. They're just people who think, oh, there's a nice guy. Um, so I can't see who, the, they, who the, within their bullpen they've got standing by that could do any better than Singh could do. I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe there, certainly I don't think he's much of a leader. And I think that maybe there's the, some structural issues will show 
during this campaign. But I suspect uh, he'll be back after because they don't expect him to win. So him losing isn't uh, a violation of brand. I mean, O'Toole will be out on his ass. And it'd be interesting to speculate who's coming in after him because the, you know, the heir apparent that was Peter McKay flamed out. And at this point, uh, some of the more prominent conservatives are quite frankly scary. Uh, but I think that the, the vaccines, they're saying that, it, that, that vaccine passports are going to be a major campaign issue. And help me out with this. How is it gonna be a major campaign issue when you've got 75, 80% of the country uh, or more supporting the idea of vaccine passports. How does this become an election issue? Yeah, and and once again, it's it it, it boils down to that uh, to that Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba support that the conservatives have because you know they tend to be the ones who are you know the least in favor of any kind of of recognition that that COVID has changed uh, our lives for a little bit of time, and you know, maybe not traveling as much. And, you know, and vaccine passports are seen as, you know, an infringement on my freedoms. But <clears throat> so maybe that is the, the very boutique audience that that is aimed at, where most of us will think, well, uh, you know, <clears throat> if you, uh, if, if it makes it easier to go into a, a retail um, place or, or a, um, a new movie theater or, you know, gather in large groups or go into indoor uh, dining. I mean, and then, you know, the main purpose, which is to travel internationally, uh, you know, whether it's the United States or, or, or further afield, you know, most of us go like, well, most of the world is requiring this at some point. Uh, you know, Quebec has rolled out a system. You know, Ontario has steadfastly uh, refused to uh, roll out any kind of a vaccine passport. And they've said, you know, that, that shabby piece of paper that they issued you at Shoppers Drug Mart is good enough. I mean, which, which looks like it was it was designed by uh, by a, a committee of, of, of three year olds doing a group project. It, it's a terrible looking document. If you even got a document because uh, they offered us at our inoculation place uh, at, at the drugstore, they offered just to email. Well, yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's the problem. You, they email it to or you, you can actually go on to the, uh, the uh, Ministry of, of, of Health's uh, website and you can download your, your own document over and over again as many times as you like. It's, it's in the system somewhere. So there is a document out there. But again, it's, it's subject to fraud and photoshopping and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, they've said Ontario, well, that's good enough. But what they're really doing is they're waiting for Trudeau uh, to come up with the 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 federal vaccine passport, which then can easily be adopted by any retail outfit here who says, I want to see your vaccine passport because I've got a you know, QR code reader or something. And that will become the currency of getting in and out of, uh, of public spaces without Ford having to have done anything uh, that would annoy his own base of you know, who, who would be saying like, no, no, a vaccine passport is, is, is too far. Uh, we're not going to support that. Um, but we will you know, let the feds do that and then we'll piggyback on them. So I, I think that's what's happening in Ontario and probably happened in some other provinces as well. But, but like you said, you know, 75% of, of Canadians are like, yeah, a vaccine passport makes perfect sense. It's not any kind of infringement on my freedom. 
Um, you know, everyone talks about second class, you know, we're creating a, a category of second class citizens. It's like, well, no, we're creating a, a category of people that's safe to be around and people who are not safe to be around. I mean, it's like, uh, it's like saying, well, you know, leper colonies are unfair. It's like, well, you know, uh, they, 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 you know, they, they really, you know, contagious wards of hospitals are, are there for a reason. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a, a confidence that we have as a society to go forward and mingle with each other again. And that's a very small price to pay, but that, that's, you know, that's political capital that conservatives are not prepared to spend when it's quite happy. You know, they're quite happy just to kind of keep their heads down on it and just say, oh, it's individual choice. You know, people can do whatever they like. And here's all these half measures like, uh, you know, downloading your, uh, your crappy looking form from the OHEP site and, uh, you know, show that to anyone if they can figure that out and believe that it's real. Yeah, the comparisons that have been made to the notion of a vaccine passport, I find offensive in their stupidity. Uh, the comparison that has been made to wearing to, to Jews and, and gay people wearing symbols on their clothing in concentration camps. Uh, or in occupied uh, Nazi territory, it, it's absurd because the Jews or the gay people weren't given the opportunity to not be Jews or gay people. Whereas here, this is a matter of choice. You're choosing not to avail yourself of the opportunity to be seen as somebody who is safe to have around and to, to allow into your business. You run a business. You don't want your business to be one of the ones that, that comes up in my, my feed every day on uh, my Google feed, talking about which businesses had an outbreak of COVID. You don't want to be one of those businesses. So it's their right as business owners to insist that certain conditions be met for public safety. So the idea that it compares in any way to the identification and persecution of Jews and uh, Roma and gay people uh, by the Nazis is just stupid. And the whole idea of saying, oh, papers, please, as if we're in some Soviet country. Again, this is not about uh, the state imposing on you. This is about the, the state and the individual businesses saying that we need to know who's, who's safe. You have a choice. You have the opportunity to become safe. You have the opportunity to, to easily join the passported. But if you choose not to, that is, you want your freedom. You want your freedom to choose. Well, you have your freedom to choose, but there are also consequences to your choice. And that's what people don't seem to like these days about freedoms, is the fact that freedom, the choice you make for your freedom comes with consequences. Not all of them are bad consequences, but choices come with consequences and they don't want consequences. They want this notion of being able to decide to do whatever they want and there should be absolutely no repercussions as a result of it. And that is just childish thinking that far too many adults indulge in. Yeah, and you know, and you know, there's tons. You know, you, they're they're all over Twitter, they're all over Facebook. They're all the kinds of things that say, well, you know, you can choose to drink, 
And you can even choose to drive if you drink, but there are consequences to that. Um, and there are reasons that we have rules against that sort of thing. You know, there, you, that you need to carry insurance if you're, uh, if you're going to drive a car because driving a car is, uh, is a privilege and it comes with consequences. Uh, if, you, you know, if, you, if you smash into something else, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of, I mean, just, you know, international travel. If you want to go to another country, but you think it's a personal affront to actually have to carry a passport and show it to somebody, um, you're not going to get very far. Uh, there, there's, these are all reasonable accommodations that we make in order to live as a society and move around safely. And, and like you say, you know, the, the morality of, of the people who object to masking or, or vaccination or anything, you know, or, or vaccine passports, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the, the, the concept of freedom that, that a, a nine-year-old has. You know, I'm, I'm insulting nine-year-olds. Let's move it down to like a five-year-old. You know, it's, it's like, well, you know, I have the right to eat chocolate. It's like, well, no, you don't have a right to eat chocolate till you're sick. You, you know, you have to eat other things. Well, no, what's, you know, you're infringing my freedom. And the people who, who you know, odiously compare the, especially it happens a lot in the United States and you see people who are at these anti-masking, um, anti-vaccination rallies who, you know, pin yellow uh, stars of David on themselves and they think they're being, being clever and uh, that, the, uh, that the parallel is apt. And it's just like, give your head a shake. Uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, the persecution of, of various groups of people, the Jews, the biggest among them, for no good reason being you know, um, taken out of society and ostracized and murdered versus, you know, you, to protect yourself and other people, you really ought to take this incredibly safe vaccine that we've developed so we can get back to normal life. And everyone else is doing it because we all consider ourselves part of a society. Uh, you know, the people who you know, rely on the herd uh, immunity uh, you know, and we've never developed herd immunity to things like smallpox and, uh, you know, or the flu, um, you know, herd immunity is probably not, uh, not in the cards for, for this, uh, this particular disease, but, you know, they forget that they're part of a herd and part of being part of a herd means you have responsibilities to the herd as well. Uh, you know, you're not along for a free ride. And these people think herd immunity is a free ride for them not to get vaccinated while, you know, the sheep will go out and get it done and then they can reap the benefits of it doesn't work that way you're part of a society and that means you've got to do some things to, to show that you are a committed part of that society whether it's wearing a mask getting vaccinated or having a vaccine passport if one ever comes along so that you can freely mingle with your fellow citizens in a safe way and that's why i don't believe this is going to be an election issue it may be something that uh, o'toole pounds to try to uh, secure his vote with his base base but I don't think that the, this is an issue people shrug at. I think people are looking for, and I mean, certainly I am, I'm looking for the federal government to make a decision. So that, you know, I'd like a decision either for sure there are going to be vaccine passports or for sure there are not going to be vaccine passports. I think businesses would love there to be a, a law or a federal mandate for vaccine passports because then the responsibility of enforcing keeping people out who are unvaccinated doesn't fall on the individual staff members of businesses who have been bearing the brunt of this for over a year and a half. Uh, even, even with the, the mask mandate, they still get trouble, but there's a mask mandate they can point to rather than saying it's just, it's store policy. 
And if it becomes its store policy, there's going to be so, so many Karens. And uh, I don't know what the male version of Karen is, um, but there's going to be so many of those coming up. We really do need firm leadership from a federal government that says we're going to have a vaccine passport because this vacillation is, is nonsensical. And the fact that so many people, conservative voters included, support the idea of a vaccine passport, this is not a campaign issue. So it brings me to the question, what is? Well, it's, you know, if you, if you look at all the party, I mean, the parties have had platforms. I mean, there's the, 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 the liberal platform seems to be, we're going to keep on doing the stuff that we've been doing. Um, we're going to keep supporting people uh, directly, as opposed to uh, the, uh, the you know the conservative uh, vision, which is you know we're going to support the corporations and hopefully the crumbs uh, you know land on on the table, which has always been their 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 position. Yes, the trickle the, the trickle down theory and yes, the problem which has never worked down. any it never worked anywhere anytime. No, and and the problem with trickle down theory is that we're, it's basically it, it amounts to those on the bottom of the triangle being urinated on that's the trickle <laughs> that's the trickle i i feel yeah. something warm going yeah, down that, my leg that's the trickle in trickle down theory it doesn't it's a theory it's a theory that has been proven not to work so it's a def, it is a uh, defrocked theory at this point it's just nonsense yeah and so you know the liberals are campaigning hard on the uh on the child care the ten dollar a day uh daycare as as they should i mean that is incredibly popular and oddly enough the uh you know the conservatives came out with their own which was a, a boutique uh, re uh, refundable tax credit for parents uh which is one of the one of their favorite things they love tax credits and you know they have these this little patchwork system for people who don't you know like red tape. They certainly create an awful lot of exceptions and work for accountants because you know they're they're you know it was just a crazy policy and you know obviously they really hate the idea of the ten dollar daycare. Otherwise you know they wouldn't go out of their way to poke it in the eye. But this idea of a, of a, a refundable tax credit for childcare it just, you know, it, it doesn't reach the right people. It doesn't create spaces. Um, it basically is, you know, it, they say that it gives parents the choice, but parents will have the choice as far as I know. I mean, I'm, thankfully I'm well, well out of the childcare uh, years. Um, the, uh, they always seem to come up with some initiative that would have saved me a lot of money long after I, I could have used it. Um, childcare is one of those things, but the, the idea is that uh, there'll be um, subsidized daycare and people will have the chance to do it. This isn't just, uh, you know, they're going to be creating baby camps places uh, <laughs> where, you know, for 10 bucks a day, you can throw your kid over the fence. It's, you know, this is really supporting an industry, which is quite a big industry with, uh, um, you know, and guaranteeing that the uh, the consumers of it, the parents will have a $10 a day option for a day. You can pay more money if you like for a different daycare. And some people I'm sure will, but uh, you know, it, it creates a system of affordable daycare. So I was surprised that the conservatives would come out swinging against that because they're on the verge of signing up the eighth province for it um, because it is, um, you know, if Mr. Uh, Mr. Jadmik Singh is listening, uh, you know, it is a, uh, a 
primarily a provincial responsibility, but it's something that the federal governments can get buy into if they throw enough money at it. So they've got you know, eight or um, seven or eight uh, provinces already signed up for it. Uh, with Ontario looking at it, but there's no way Ontario will do it during the election because that would kill O'Toole. Um, so they're going to wait until after the election. And if there's a liberal minority majority or any form of liberal government at all, then I, I think you'll see uh, um, Doug Ford uh, signing on to the $10 a day uh, daycare as well, because it is it is going to be incredibly popular. Um, but the, the other stuff that you know the conservatives are doing, they have they, they, crazy stuff. Like they say, we're going to give a GST holiday for one month, probably in December, for retail purchases um, by 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 individuals. And it's like, well, sure, GST is is a is a pain in the butt. Um, you know, it's five percent, and people are going to if if you had a if you saw it went by a store and it said big sale 5% off would would that be enough to make you go in you know 5% <laughs> like, <laughs> because that's essentially what it is and you know the GST holiday is a 5% sale it's like 5% off it's like well that's going to drive the economy um he also it is this- it is bizarre though that is a that is a, I, I think that they're looking for or, or policies that you can put on a bumper sticker and that are easily digested by people and hearing tax holiday uh, certainly it sounds very attractive mm-hmm. but sounds when very, you act very you know, buck yeah very much so but when you actually look at it and canadians aren't idiots we don't elect based on slogans and when you stop and look at it as being a five percent sale that doesn't give that okay we'll, we'll accept your position on uh, abortion, which we'll get to, we'll accept your position on funding for children. We'll accept all these other positions of yours that are generally things we do not support, so that we can get one month of five percent off. Uh, yeah. it, it the scales don't balance. No, so which, you know, it doesn't include big on online retailers. Doesn't include cars. Doesn't include alcohol and tobacco. Uh, you know, it, by the time you know, it's, it, it, by the time you read the fine print, it's it's like a you know the big sale notice you know that uh, you get, but you know excluding all of these things, it's like well you know what what's I guess I could buy myself a pair of shoes at five percent off. That would be exciting, um, and but, you know and the burden on you know, and, and the burden of course they say well it's going to be at point of sale too. So the burden is on the retailers to reprogram all of their all their sales software to take off the five percent. And then they have to do their GST accounting, you know, every quarter and come up with some sort of a, you know, be able to track that money through the system. It's a nightmare for retailers who, who would have to participate in this sort of thing. It would cost them more than the 5% to, to implement it. It's it, in some ways is similar to when the Trump administration lowered uh, emissions for cars. And the automakers were like, no, we're going to stay with what we've got. <laughs> it, because, it cost us too much to retool. Yeah, too much. And then if it changes again, we're going to have to retool again. No, thanks. We'll stay with what we've got. Uh, there's no reason for us to, no business reason for us to to change. And that is the same thing with this, this GST holiday. And the problem with refundable tax credits is you got to have the money to pay in pay in first before you can get it back yep. in in taxes um or in taxes you don't pay uh 
And the conservatives never seem to recognize that part of the problem is these pe people do not have the money up front to pay for childcare. I remember when uh, my uh, cousin had her first child and my cousin's a professional. She, they discovered that it, it made more sense for her to stay at home, to quit her job and stay at home than it did to hire a full-time childcare or like, you know, full, by full-time, I mean, full day yep. uh, childcare that it made more sense for her, like that she'd, she'd, they'd bring in a little less money, but not a lot less if she stayed home and, and looked after the kid. And those kind of calculations are the kinds that are being made all over the place by people who are not in uh, well-paying jobs, uh, who don't have a partner who's in a job that can support the family on its own. And so they're, they're stuck betwixt and between, they've got a child, but they can't afford the childcare, but they also can't afford to, for one of them to leave their job and look after the child. So the idea of something refundable, well, in order to get a refund, you got to spend the money first. Why do you think so many companies offer you uh, a refund slip or a voucher in your purchase? Because they know that a very small number of people actually bother to, to submit this, to go to the trouble of mailing it in. They don't, they don't bother. And so it's not really even a refund. It's money you spend up front that you hope you, you have to engage you, you know, in, in paperwork to get on the back end. But if you don't have the money up front, it doesn't matter that you can get it back later. You don't have it. Yeah. And I think, you know, conservatives have loved tax credits for, for, for as long as I've been alive. Uh, and I think they love them for two reasons. One, uh, they do absolutely nothing for poor people uh, because they, you know, they really don't want to help poor people at the end of the day. And, uh, and two, uh, if you're rich enough uh, to be able to afford the things, there's a real benefit if you're in one of the upper uh, tax brackets. So, you know, it's a win-win. You you get, you get to, you know, keep the boot down on the poor people and uh, you give your rich buddies, uh, you know, a, a tax break. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that is, you know, tax credits, refundable or not, in a nutshell, whereas, you know, direct subsidies, um, uh, where, you know, it's going to be 10 bucks a day, is, is uh, you know, it's a doable, like, like you said, you know, you, <clears throat> someone figured out that, you know, in order to break even on, on decent childcare, you know, in, you know, in any urban center, a parent has to make somewhere between 35 and $40,000 a year just to break even by the time they paid their taxes, because there are, you know, there's, there's precious little uh, tax deduction for, for childcare. Um, but, you know, so you, you know, like, like your, uh, your relative or your, your friend, you've got to, you know, look at a job, go like, okay, if I'm my first $40,000 is going to pay for childcare. So whatever on top of that, less tax is what I've got to, you know, to spend 40 hours a week uh, doing something that I may or may not love. Yeah. And, that calculation often winds up with the person staying at home. And it's unfair because often because of the, the way the system has evolved, the lower income earner is in, in a case of a male female partnership is the woman. And so it removes women from the workforce yeah. and studies have shown in, in other countries that women in the workforce increases the GDP. It increases the value of businesses and economic activity. And so removing women from the workforce is hampering our ability to grow the economy. So 
I don't think that his his Rube Goldberg approach to childcare is going to draw any support away from liberals or NDP. And certainly this, re, you know, rearing its ugly head again is the whole de uh, debate about abortion. And the fact is, there's really no debate about abortion. But even with P uh, Peter O'Toole, uh, Aaron O'Toole stepping forward and saying that he is pro-choice, he's still got voices in his party that are anti-choice. And that and a lot scares of a lot of people. It scares a lot of people. Uh, yeah. And rightfully so. So it's it's weird that abortion in 2021 is one of the election issues, uh, considering how long it's been since we've had any legislation on the books governing uh, reproductive rights. But it seems like, at least in these early days, it's become something largely because there's a vacuum as far as what the big overall concern is going to be. I think the big overall concern uh, probably is going to continue to be childcare because the pandemic has hastened people's awareness of what happens if there isn't sufficient childcare. Now, during the pandemic, there wouldn't have been childcare anyway because people couldn't couldn't go out in mass and you know in groups. But being home with your kids all the time, I think, has <laughs> made people aware of just how important it is that there's good, affordable, quality childcare out there. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, you know, and as a, as a campaign strategy, you know, to, to go against something that is incredibly popular, um, like, like $10 a day childcare, and, and know that you're going to alienate all the parents that are out there. And like you say, you know, specifically, you know, the emphasis on women, because women bear the brunt of this sort of stuff. You know, the ten dollar day child care, a daycare allows them to go out and earn a living and build their careers and and do things because usually they are the like like you said they're often the lower income earner and they're the ones who if a job has to go it's their job that goes so they don't participate they don't build they don't build towards a, a retirement and you know there's a dependency um, you know again on on spouses. Um, if, if there's one, uh, one income earner. So to, to alienate that group of voters so casually and to, you know, to try to say, well, look, we've got this other plan that, that, that really doesn't work. We're going to give you a, a tax credit of 75% uh, of the cost of your, your childcare um, up to a certain amount of money um, as a refundable tax credit. It's like, well, why would, why would you, go out of your way to piss off that many voters on something that is a sure winner, except for the idea it, it's a liberal platform and, uh, you know, we have to be against it because we're, you know, we're not liberals. Yeah. We need, we need, we're the opposition. So we need to oppose it. Yeah. And I mean, it's weak sauce. It's really weak. What the conservatives are coming up with. I think that the threat to the liberals comes from the NDP. I don't think that it comes from the conservatives. I think the conservatives have their baked in writings and that's where the, they're not going to grow. But I think it's possible for the NDP to grow. And that's the flank that the liberals need to be securing. I don't think they need to fight against the, the, the difference between the liberals and the conservatives is rather clear. So they don't need to keep pounding on it to further uh, expound upon that delineation. I think what they need to do is delineate themselves 
from the NDP. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure how they do that because, you know, the NDP, you know, and, and they came out with their policy booklet and it is essentially the same policy booklet that they came out in 2019. There isn't a lot of change in there, but how does the NDP differentiate themselves from the liberals uh, in terms of policy? Because they, they've spent, you know, the last two years saying, Every good thing the liberals have done, it's because of us. This is, this is you know, the, all the liberal action was first an NDP idea, uh, what, you know, which may or may not be true, but nobody has, has a monopoly on good ideas. Uh, but they've taken credit for all the good stuff that has happened in, during the entire minority government. And they take no, no, no criticism for any of the bad stuff that happened, the, the stuff they don't like during the minority government. So, but you know, pick a policy that where the NDP and the liberals diverge significantly um, is, is really tough to do. Uh, you know, a pipeline, sure. Uh, I don't think anyone's really thinking pipeline. I mean, the people who are mad about pipelines are still mad about pipelines. I don't think that's a big deal. Um, you know, it's not a it's it's not a hot election issue. Again, it's kind of baked in, um, and you know, pipelines have kind of disappeared between, you know, Biden uh, canceling Keystone and you know the permitting and the the crappy price of oil and all the rest of the stuff. Pipelines really aren't that big an issue anymore. I mean, there may be at some point again when that economy, that sector of the economy turns around, if it ever turns around, and pipelines become economic and, and all the rest. In Alberta, they complain about them, but again, not a lot of, uh, not a lot of liberal or NDP uh, uh, votes to be had in, in Alberta. Um, so what does the NDP do to just, you know, to to differentiate themselves from the liberal, except for saying, well, I'm Jagmeet Singh and I'm not uh, Justin Trudeau. Well, I think what the liberals can do is just open the box on the NDP will spend us into further bankruptcy. We, we've got a huge deficit because of the, the pandemic. We can't afford to have an NDP government now. We've got to spend our, we've got to find a way to, to retire our deficit and the NDP are not the way to go because that always works against the NDP. The notion that they would bankrupt us always works, especially you got soft liberal support, lib support that may be on the border between liberal and NDP. You open up that, that, uh, that box and talk about the NDP spending us into oblivion and you've got, you've got a winning, uh, winning delineation between you and the NDP. And that's what I, I suspect they will do, because as you said, policy-wise, the difference is more in the velocity than the direction. And that's, uh, it, it's going to be a tougher go for Singh to claim that everything was, everything was his idea than it will be for uh, Trudeau to say, no, it was his idea or their idea, the, ND, the Liberals' idea, and the NDP is going to spend you into oblivion. Yeah, and I, I think there is a real sense too of the NDP being in trouble organizing on the ground for this election. Uh, they clearly weren't ready for it. I mean, we talked before that they don't have any money. Uh, you know, they've they've had in previous uh, previous campaigns uh, mortgaged the the building that they uh, that they own in Ottawa in order to, uh, to to finance things. They had they had the uh, two point I think it was two point seven million dollar. Uh, uh, debt that was uh, found to be owing for the improper use of uh, of, of their parliamentary research offices for um, for um, partisan purposes that they had to repay. 
um, that they're, you know, the money coming in has slowed down. And even just, you know, on the ground, you know, as of Wednesday morning, the, um, the, the Max Bernier's party, the, the, the PPC, had more nominated candidates than the NDP. And, you know, and we're five, six days into the election at this point, the NDP only had about 205 uh, ridings that had a candidate in them out of 338. And, uh, you know, versus the, you know, the liberals and conservatives are both around 305 uh, nominated candidates, still short of the 338. But the NDP, you know, only, you know, two out of every three ridings uh, has an NDP candidate named at this point. And, you know, it's a short campaign. Um, so if you are going to run as, as an NDP candidate, um, you know, you've got a, a very short runway to get yourself out there and known people will vote the party. Um, and those are the people you kind of rely on, but it's, it's, you know, they are going to have real troubles, both in terms of money and in, in people, um, you know, not just, you know, if you don't have a candidate, you don't have a campaign. I mean, who, who is licking the stamps? Who, you know, to the extent that anyone licks stamps anymore, um, you know, who's manning the phone uh, banks? Who's doing this? If you don't have volunteers, then you turn to money and you hire people to do that, but they don't have money either. So I think there's a real structural election campaign problem that the NDP is is really facing, which will really hurt them in terms of of uh, of elected MPs. And that's why I think, I think the NDP is going to go down uh, in seats. Um, I mean, I think there, there's some disgruntled liberals who uh, might, uh, might want to park uh, a vote there, but, you know, but those are fewer and fewer, I think at this point, um, I think the NDP is, is losing ground and the personal appeal of Singh uh, as a leader, uh, you know, he's a dynamic, charismatic guy. Um, people love him, but you know, they're, they're, that's not enough to carry, uh, you know, a presidential style campaign uh, if you don't have a candidate in the riding at this point. And the other thing has been that uh, the liberals have been really, really good at getting the unions on side. Uh, there's all kinds of unions who, because some of the liberal policies have been actually very, very good for working people, um, short of actual endorsements, you're seeing a lot of soft support from unions. And, you know, that's the NDP's bread and butter. Well, I saw a uh, poll today and uh, I was in a, I was dashing somewhere, so I didn't study it, but this poll said that the liberals had dropped five points and they're in a dead heat with the conservatives. And uh, that may be with one poll, but my theory, and it's been, been borne out through numerous elections is that the polls don't really reflect voting intentions until about five days before the election. Before that, people get phone, phone calls and they say what they need to say to get off the phone. They aren't really focused on the issues. They really start looking, studying those brochures and making up their mind in the last five days. So polls up to that point, unless there's a massive, massive wave uh, of support for one party uh, early on, that's dangerous to that party because then people think they don't need to go out and show up to vote because it... it they're already so far ahead but and certainly some polls can show momentum if there is a consistent build but most polls tend to fluctuate within margin of error and they don't really reflect anything until people really put their attention towards who they're going to vote for and that's about five days before the election yeah and i think that's right i mean and i think uh 
you know, the initial softness uh, that the liberals are showing in the polls, you know, it may be a little residual, you know, you're taking me for granted, uh, you know, what we started off talking in this podcast about, which is, you know, is, is there a resentment uh, of, you know, for calling an early election? And, you know, we talked about that in our last podcast. And, you know, there may be a little bit of that in there, but, you know, does, do those people come around? And especially when you start seeing, uh, you know, the, the conservatives, are um you know who are by by all accounts in second place um you know are they going to come on it doesn't seem to be because you know they they've spent the first week of the campaign with nothing but flubs and missteps i mean if they started off the day before the election i don't know if you saw the um the uh, the willy wonka commercial the, the, the willy Mar- wonka commercial that was that they they left up and they were so proud of they finally had to take it down because it, uh they got called on copyright violation it wasn't because they decided it was a, a terrible piece of uh, theater um, even, but even conservatives were saying it was a terrible piece of theater oh absolutely and so you, you wonder who they test marketed it with uh you know apparently the people nine-year-olds well, the people who are running, uh, advising on on the election are the same people that Boris Johnson used in uh, his his last successful uh, election as a, as conservative prime minister. Um, but I again, it was a it was a terrible misstep. Now, was it a calculated misstep? Did it reach an audience that they wanted to reach? I mean, I don't believe that all. All publicity is good publicity when it comes to politics, but maybe there was some kind of strange, twisted belief that that was a good idea. That then there was the cover of the uh, conservative uh, uh, policy <laughs> book with uh, with um, you know Mike Mike Holmes, yeah. um, you know Aaron comparing that that picture of of, of Aaron O'Toole uh, in his, uh, his his blue uh, t shirt, uh, you know, looking all all manly and and handy manny. Uh, it, which is, you know, if, if you look like that in real life, then that's great. But every picture you see of him does not look like that. He looks like a, like a, a you know, a doughy middle-aged guy. I mean, and I, I say that speaking for doughy middle-aged guys everywhere. Yeah, one um, here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if I was on the cover of something and I, you know, you obviously try to look your best, but, you know, I'm not going to try to look like a bodybuilder. Um, and you know, it I got widely ridiculed. Not even before they opened up the the, the uh, policy book and found crazy stuff in there, like, well, you know, for uh, for a couple of months, we're going to give everyone half off on your meal purchases, excluding drinks, excluding alcoholic drinks, uh, only Monday to Wednesday. I think they said. I mean, it, it ended up looking like a Groupon coupon. Yeah, I was um, say, that's what it's, it it's it's like the craziest thing. Like you're getting like a, a two for one, uh, uh, you know, appetizers at uh, at Chili's. Um, it's uh, some it's, some restrictions apply. Some restrictions apply and, you know, please tip on the whole amount, not just on the 50% and, uh, you know, no sharing main courses. And, you know, it's, that's a a national policy uh, during an election, during a pandemic, during, you know, economic recovery and all the rest. And that your way out is to give people like a free appetizer. (laughs) Where, how does that belong in a a serious major political (laughs) parties campaign? Like I'd be embarrassed to put that, that in there. Well, be, I mean, we'll have much to talk about for the next few weeks. And oh, no so, doubt. Um, we'll put this aside just to spend a few minutes on discussing the tragedy of Afghanistan. The U.S. spends $2 trillion over 20 years, and the minute they leave, everything that they built up falls down. It, it was instant. The president didn't even, there was no resistance. 
everyone just threw their hands up and let the Taliban come in. And wow, it just shows why Afghanistan is a country that cannot be conquered. The Soviets couldn't do it. Americans couldn't do it. People before them couldn't do it. Afghanistan isn't, doesn't have enough of a structure, a government structure uh, throughout the country to be the kind of place that you can actually reform. It, there's, there's too many fiefdoms, warlords, uh, factions, and there was no way to bring that country uh, into a, a more Western mold. And now that, uh, the, I mean, it was, it was instantaneous, the fall of the, uh, the, uh, the government in Afghanistan. And I think some people are surprised, not at the result, but at the rapidity that it happened with. Yeah, I think everyone expected it to, 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 to fall, the wheels fall off it. Um, and it, it's funny, I was reading a really interesting article by someone named Douglas London, who was the CIA's former counterterrorism chief for the, for the region that included Afghanistan, um, who said that, you know, Afghanistan falling in 48 hours, 72 hours, was one of the scenarios that we talked about. You know, we talked about a whole pile of scenarios about, you know, it could last a year or two, or could last 90 days, it could last 30 days. And one of their scenarios was, you know, it could, it could collapse like, like a, a, a rotten, uh, a rotten egg uh, with nothing inside within 24, 48 hours. Now they said, that's not the most likely scenario, but that was one of the scenarios that they actually had talked about um, happening. And, you know, there's a really, again, there's an interesting article on it. Uh, when we post the podcast, I'll post a link to it as well, because it's really interesting, uh, his insight into the region. And he, he points to a couple of things. And really, it was the advance work that the Taliban had been doing for, you know, for years and certainly ramped up as soon as Trump made the announcement uh, with, a, with a hard date that, you know, the United States is going to leave. It's like, okay, now we, we can start planning uh, how we make Afghanistan ours again in, in a, you know, they thought, you know, even the Taliban was, was surprised. They thought, you know, a couple of weeks, but what they were doing is they were going around to all of the security forces, all the police forces, all the military, all the rest, and they were saying, okay, um, we're going to come into your village. We're going to give everyone $150 for every rifle that they give us. And Mr. Mayor, we'll give you $10,000 if there's no resistance. And they took the money because that sort of, of, of political buying of loyalties has been the common currency of Afghanistan for hundreds of years. People come in and they just buy their way through. Um, and it's, it's, part of the culture, especially out in the rural areas. I mean, and this is over and above corruption. This is just, this is just the way you do business. It's gifts. It's, um, you know, it's buying favor. It's, it's, you know, avoiding conflict by this sort of thing. So he said the Taliban for the last six months, year has been in all of these little areas, buying people's loyalty, making sure that there wasn't going to be resistance. Uh, they, they sort of prepaid, you know, it's like, it's like going to, to, to you know, to, to Cineplex and prepaying for your seat. So, you know, it's going to be there for you when, when, you know, even though the, you know, the, the blockbuster movie hasn't been, uh, hasn't been released yet, and it's going to be three weeks from now, you've already bought your seat. The Taliban had already bought their seat when it came to uh, moving through the country. So when they did, they just said, hey, remember us? We paid for all this stuff. Yep, here, here's your guns. Here's your whatever. 
you know, no, welcome, uh, welcome to the village. And they just swept right across because they had done all this advance work and it, it no one opposed them because they, you know, they were already allied with the, the Taliban and the Tab Taliban. It's very tribal as well. And, you know, American Western values just never took root there because there's absolutely no interest in it. There's interest in the, you know, except for a small minority of people, mostly in the urban centers, mostly in support services to, to the, to the NATO allies and to the, uh, and to the, and to the government, which itself was incredibly corrupt. Um, everyone else was still working on tribal basis and they had no interest in Western stuff. You know, they have no interest in democracy. You know, they see democracy as one of the weaknesses of, of, of liberal Western um, civilization. You know, they, they don't value it because they don't have the system in place that, that we've, you know, developed over 400 years um, to, uh, to, you know, encourage personal liberty and, uh, and democracy that comes for it. They, they've got no interest in that stuff. So it's not tough for them to just reject the West and its military and all the rest because... They never bought into it in the first place, except for a small cadre of people who, uh, you know, were, you know, the, the professors, the intelligentsia, some of the, you know, Western educated uh, government officials, um, some of the uh, NGO workers, um, you know, women activists. Aside from that very, very small minority, nobody in Afghanistan was interested in what the West was selling in the first place. So it was really easy for them to turn their back on it very, very quickly. I feel sorry for, of course the uh, interpreters who were stuck there, the uh, families of people who cooperated and helped out with uh, American forces, because uh, even though the Taliban says there will be no retaliation, I don't think anyone believes that. No, no, there will be retaliation, absolutely. And I feel terrible for the women of Afghanistan, the ones who did em embrace education and choosing a mate and just the kind of freedoms that people in the West take for granted, they're, they're gone now. And while the Taliban says that they said they will fully respect women's rights within the limits of the Quran, and it's within the limits of their interpretation of the Quran. So that means it's back to the way it was before. Women will not be educated. They will be chattel again. And for those who tasted Western style feminisms, to use a term, this is this is hell on earth. Oh, it's going to be incredibly bitter for those people because, you know, they've had, you know, someone was talking the other day on CNN about, you know, there've been effectively 20 years of Western opportunities for those who are lucky enough to be able to access them in, in Afghanistan. I mean, which includes the freedoms and the education and the choice and travel and you know personal liberties, not having to uh, to wear the full niqab and, and all the rest. Um, you know, and some chose to still wear the niqab, but they chose to do it. Um, and there are people who chose not to do it as as well. And all that choice is is gone. And like you say, it, it'll be incredibly sad and incre incredibly bitter uh, for for people who've tasted those sorts of things. Um, and there's going to be an enormous uh, you know, not just the, the, the very small airlift that's going on among a couple of Western countries trying to get out a few people. Uh, there's going to be massive um, um, 
uh, massive uh, migrations of refugees who are trying to escape, uh, you know, that Taliban rule because either they're in danger for their lives, or like you said, they 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 realize that life can be very very different than being under fundamentalist uh, Islamic uh, rule, and they want to go somewhere where there's more relative freedom. Uh, you know, any of the bordering countries, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Pakistan, India, or, or, or you know, where, wherever they can get a foothold. Um, so there's going to be a, a massive human tragedy um, as soon as the, uh, the, the migration start uh, again as well. And, you know, that, that'll be the, the other foot that drops. Well, it just shows us the limits of Western power in this world. It's, uh, it's a wake-up call. The notion that uh, the U.S., obviously, usually the U.S. leading the forces, uh, can go in someplace and plant a flag for Western-style democracy. Uh, no, there are limits to that. I think that uh, at this point in time, we'd better spend a lot of time, and certainly the United States needs to spend more time securing democracy within their own country. You know, well, yes, they're, they're you know, they're suffering for, from a serious uh, democratic deficit uh, all, all over as well. But, you know, they've been singularly poor at being able to export the values because, you know, the underlying conditions just aren't there for it. And, uh, you know, there are, are lots of people who will you know, quite happily accept the benefits of, of the first world. Um, you know, whether they're technological or medical or scientific um, or military, especially, I mean, they love the stuff, but the values that, that produced that kind of world, um, they're, you know, they're, they're certainly less interested in because, you know, it, it is incredibly foreign to them. And, you know, a country like uh, Afghanistan is, like you said, it's where empires go to die. I mean, they've taught, you know, they, they gave the British Empire a black eye. They, uh, you know, the, the Russians with all the ferocity of the communist war machine uh, couldn't, couldn't pacify it. And, you know, the United States and the, uh, and the allies who uh, went into Afghanistan, you know, tw some 20 years ago, um, you know, certainly, you know, not as brutal as, as the Russians, but, uh, you know, they found that they just seemed, you know, it, it was a real, you know, I'm seeing, especially in the United States right now, you know, they're saying, well, it, Afghanistan did exactly what uh, the Americans wanted it to do. It, uh, you know, it, it put uh, a trillion dollars into uh, the pockets of the, uh, the, you know, the military complex, the uh, manufacturers of weapons, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the private soldiering, you know, the, the companies that wanted to go in there and get contracts. I mean, the United States got its money's worth out of Afghanistan because none of that money stayed in Afghanistan. And at the same time, you know, the uh, increase in, in opium production and various other, uh, you know, raw, raw materials in Afghanistan made some people very, very rich. Um, and, you know, now, you know, they leave and it's a broken country again. Yeah, very tragic. Uh, I wish we could do more than say it's very tragic, but uh, individual hands are somewhat limited in this. I just would like Canada to take in as many Afghan refugees as they can. Uh, we are a place that still welcomes refugees. So I'd like to see, especially those people who were helpful to uh, Western forces, I'd like to see Canada take as many as, as we can conceivably absorb, um, hmm. recognizing the state of our economy now and so on. But uh, to leave people consigned to that nightmare, 
it's awful it's just awful and yeah as you said with the speed at which afghanistan fell i mean you know it's sort of like the blitzkrieg of world war ii where you know the the german army you know took over france in three weeks and like wait a second that was the best army in europe how did that happen you know we put all this money and effort into it and it just collapsed but now that you know the problem of getting out the uh you know people who had helped uh you know canadian forces and canada's been out of afghanistan for 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 a while now but uh, you know people who were helpful uh, we were having trouble getting out our own people um and you know the the chaos that's there and the the rapidity with which afghanistan fell except for a very very small pocket where we've now apparently negotiated uh, that we can uh, fly two planes in and out of there a day without you know having the tarmac covered in people you can't land a plane if uh, if it's covered in people, uh, you know whether they're refugees or desperate people or or, or something else, um, we're at least able to do that. But you know, a lot of people who are criticizing the government about getting people out of Afghanistan really took the uh, the, the naive approach. That it's like it's like calling an Uber. Well, what do you mean we can't get them out? It's like well, the Taliban controls all the access points to the airport. Um, and you know, once you get them in there, you know, you, you do have to vet people because you don't want people who are uh, coming in the, who are, uh, you know, immediately interested in taking flying lessons because, uh, you know, you know, they've got, uh, they've got a revolution on their mind once they get to Canada. So you do have to have some sort of vetting. Uh, you have to have some kind of security checks on these people. You have to decide how big a family are you going to bring because families can be very big. Are you bringing, you know, the wife and the kids? Are you bringing the sister-in-law? Are we bringing their kids? Are we, you know, it gets very, very messy very, very quickly. So the I think, you know, the government unfairly came in for a lot of criticism about the slowness um, with which they uh, they were, you know, they, and they continue to evacuate people out of Afghanistan. It's, it's going to be a, a terrible process. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, and not for lack of trying, it really is just the, uh, the chaos that's on the ground there that is, is now keeping the, uh, you know, us from being able to help more people who, uh, you know, in the past have helped us. Well, we'll, uh, we'll conclude this week there. There's no up, <laughs> no way to bring that up for a happy ending. Um, but we will be back next week to uh, talk more about the election as it unfolds. Uh, the only thing you can be sure about during an election period is that there's nothing you can be sure about. So, I mean, last time, how many weeks into it were we when the Trudeau blackface thing appeared? Uh, not that I'm expecting, I mean, if anybody had that kind of ammunition against Trudeau, they would have used it already. I, so, I would have thought it would have come out at some point. So, yeah, yeah so the chances really are nothing. there aren't any more landmines. Uh, well, you know, there were, yeah, never say never in politics. You just that's, never know. But that's my point. We but, never uh, know. So we'll see how this continues to take shape. Maybe we'll we be surprised next week. Yes, maybe we'll be surprised. Actually, you know what? I don't really want any surprise. Ple- pleasantly or otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they'll be pleasantly surprised. All right, Stephen, thank you very much. Hey, well, it's good to have something to talk about. <laughs> um, Stephen Lawton's is uh, at Stephen Lawton's on Twitter. S-T-E-P-H-E-N-L-A-U-T-E-N-S. We also have a Facebook page where you can uh, join in the conversation and and let us know the things you'd like to talk about or feedback on what we've discussed. And uh, that's it for this week. So on behalf of Stephen Lawton's, I'm I'm Stephen Kersner, and you've been listening to Stephen and Stephen. (laughs) 